One day, a ship uh, out at sea got a message. Attention ahead, move five degrees east. There was a three-star admiral on the ship. He was a little bit affronted by this, and he thought, how dare another boat ask us to move? Message thus came back. We will maintain our course, thank you very much. There came an immediate response, though. Collision imminent. I insist you move. The Admiral's rage boiled. He quickly replied, this is the flagship of the Navy. You move. There's a slight pause. The reply came back. I'm a lighthouse. You move. <laughs> Today, we're looking at chapter four of the book of Daniel. And alongside chapter five, which we'll look at next week, these stories have been deliberately placed alongside each other as we see two kings and how they respond to the great God. Both are on a collision course with him due to their pride. Both get a loving warning from God. One, he did that warning, and the other, well, you'll find out next week as side chats to us about chapter five. I think it's a really strong challenge for us today in Bista, a strong challenge for us in, in the Western world. Maybe it's a strong challenge for you. Uh, maybe you think if God does exist, he's a weak figure, one who's under our control. It's up to us if we believe in him or not. Um, and if we do believe in him, then we set the limits, don't we? We set controls of his involvement in our lives. Sometimes we think it might be quite convenient to have God around. We send up a quick prayer and expect God to come running when we have a problem. Other times we think it's quite inconvenient to have him around. Maybe he's challenging us about something to do with how we live or how we think. And we don't like that. So we move him aside. And Daniel in this chapter... In this book of the Bible, we're going to see this warning. He's warning us we can't do this. He's saying God is in charge. He is sovereign and his authority is supreme. He's the rock on which the whole world is founded. Either build your lives on the rock or you will crash into it. So in this story, we're going to see two things. We're going to see a warning to the proud and we're going to see the great sovereignty of God. So firstly, a warning to the proud. First three verses, and do keep your Bibles open and keep looking down at them. Uh, we're going to zoom through the story. It's a long story. Well done, Archie. Uh, but the first three verses of our passage, they are the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. They're a bit of a spoiler for the ending, so we're going to leave them till later. And after that, we get right into the story, and we see Nebuchadnezzar, as it says, he's at home in his palace. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. We've been following him in the first three chapters, and we see him here narrate his own testimony, his own story of what God did in his life. And we see in verse 4, he was at home in his palace, contented and prosperous, happy and loaded. He's got it all. He's got no worries. Remember, this is a man in the previous chapter, probably about 20 or so years before this story. He'd felt so good about himself, he decided to build a statue in his own honour. He's, he's a pretty confident guy and he's contented and he's prosperous, it says here. Until he had this dream that was a dream that struck him with fear. And the same situation we had in chapter 2, if you remember back to chapter 2, happens. He can't interpret his own dream, but this time he knows where to go and he remembers Daniel, or Belteshazzar, as he keeps calling him, can. And notice that in verse 8, he keeps calling him Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. So at this stage, Nebuchadnezzar is still someone worshipping different gods. He tells Daniel his dream. Uh, and his dream can be summarised, hopefully we understood it, as it, it gets repeated about three times here. And it's summarised as this, there's a huge tree, abundant, lush, reaches to the heavens. Uh, under it, animals shelter under it. There's a, it's a sign of prosperity, uh, of great 
uh, power and majesty. It was prosperous. A messenger from heaven then comes and shouts down to command that the tree is cut down, except for the root, which will be bound with iron and bronze. It then switches slightly. Remember, this is a dream. Um, I would struggle to tell you a logical dream which followed in a perfect sequence, and this one doesn't. Uh, so the dream switches slightly, and we see it suddenly be said by the messenger that he is to be drenched with dew, he's to live with the animals, and to be given the mind of an animal for seven times. Probably seven years, seven seasons, a decent amount of time, they say. And then we get to verse 17. This is a key verse, and we're going to see this driven throughout again and again. It says, This decision is given so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. It's a key verse today. We know that because we see the so that. We're helping to see why was this dream given to Nebuchadnezzar? Why did God do this? And as we dive into this, hopefully we'll see what it has to say to us. Uh, I think it's worth a slight diversion here. Uh, you may be sitting, maybe it's your first time here, uh, first time reading this in Daniel, and you're probably going, this is just a bit weird. Um, I agree with you. Um, who thinks that dreams actually mean something? You might be thinking last night, I dreamed I had a bowl of porridge, a trip to the park, and my neighbor's dog. Um, are you saying that's significant? My answer is probably not. Um, you never know. Uh, but I probably think it isn't. But I do believe that God can speak in dreams. He's God. He can do what he wants. He has done here, we see. Uh, and in some places, he still occasionally does. I studied Islamic theology at university for a bit and spent a lot of time reading about how Muslims come to faith. And in many conversion stories, you hear about Jesus appearing to them in a dream, telling them that he is the only way to God. The person, the Muslim, then begins to read the Gospels, meets with a Christian, and turns to follow Jesus. Why does God use that method? Well, it, it makes sense to them in their worldview and their culture, because in the Middle East and in the Quran, God is often seen as speaking in dreams. So it, it makes sense that he sometimes does that. So I think it's just worth saying that today. If you're sitting here saying it's weird, understand that yes, it really is. But also God, if he's God, can do what he wants and speak how he wants. And he's done so in the Bible and he does here to Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the dream. And Daniel then goes on to interpret it. And the headline is this. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. His power, his authority, his kingdom is the tree. Currently great and powerful, but soon to be just like a stump. And soon he'll be acting just like an animal who is mad with his authority removed. And in Daniel's interpretation, those verses between sort of 17 and all the way to the end of 35, we see not just what will happen, but why it will happen. So zoom through with me. Verse 17, this is why it will happen. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign. Verse 25, it'll happen until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 26, your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Verse 32, seven times will pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 35, he does as he pleases. See what God is saying? Nebuchadnezzar, you think all you have is because of you, because of your power, because of your greatness, but it's not. God is saying, I am the Most High. I'm in charge, not you. The amazing arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar is then continually seen, verse 29 to 30. So remember what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what he's just been told. And then he says this, 12 months later, a whole 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his palace. You can imagine him, can't you? He's strutting on the roof of his palace. He's looking over his kingdom and he's going, wow, 
are great, aren't they? Look what I've got here. He says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? Notice this, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. He's confident, isn't he? <laughs> I think we'd say he's proud. Nebuchadnezzar says it was done by my mighty power. He's saying anything that happens is great, happens because I do it. When do we look at the definition of pride? What's pride? Well, it's often saying I'm independent. I did it. That talent I've got, I did it. I made it myself. Look how great I am. That lovely family I've got, I did that. That was all me. This faith I have even, well, it's because I decided to have it. I decided to follow Jesus and I've learnt it. How great I am. By my mighty power. Nebuchadnezzar then says it was for my glory. The aim of all he did was so that he, Nebuchadnezzar, would get the praise. And this is the essence, this is the heart of pride. Thinking we can do it all ourselves, self-sufficiency, instead of trusting in God's sufficiency. And doing it all to get praise rather than giving God praise. Now, it could be easy to sit here and say, well, that's not me, Johnny. What do I have to be proud about? I'm, I'm a loser. I don't feel self-sufficient at all. And I don't expect praise because why would anyone praise me? Pride is definitely not my problem. Wake me up in 20 minutes. Be careful here. Don't let Satan trick you here. Pride is not the achievement of self-sufficiency or praise. Pride is enjoying them, delighting in them, and desiring them. And there is a really clear difference there, isn't there? You can see your life as a total failure and still have pride as the driving force in your life. Maybe the very pain you feel, maybe because of the desperate desire you have to look successful if you're not, and to have human praise. C.S. Lewis, uh, the Oxford writer, he talks a lot about pride. Mere Christianity is a great book worth reading. He goes as far as to say this. I think it'll be on the screen. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became a devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. See, ultimately, both types of pride we've looked at are so dangerous because neither of them acknowledges God's sufficiency. Neither person knows God. Lewis goes on, he says, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This was Nebuchadnezzar, looking down on his kingdom, looking down on his people from his lofty rooftop as the giant tree, and he couldn't yet see what was above him. I wonder if you can see any of that in you. And after Nebuchadnezzar's boastful statement, we then get verse 31. Straight away, it says, this is what was decreed for you. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And we see the dream come true. Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an animal for seven times, seven seasons, until he acknowledges who God is. 
before he eventually looks up. It's visual, isn't it? And it's, it's saying when man tries to become like God, he becomes like an animal. This is the point of the insanity here. And see the link as well here between God's judgment and human responsibility. The Bible always holds these two intention. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. You see, the decree here from God was certain, but the king's response can avert further judgment. Announcements of judgment, what God says here to Nebuchadnezzar, they're given to cause people to turn to God. I've been reading uh, a lot of John Newton's letters. He was a, a slave trader who was converted a long time ago, wrote Amazing Grace. He's known as a wonderful pastor. He applied biblical truth to situations in people's lives. He talks about pride, and he talks about why God allows trials, why God allows situations like this one Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in a little bit. Except for us, it's unlikely to be insanity of being like an animal. And he says this, he says, God brings, us, God brings into our lives repeated disappointments and trials and losses, not because he wants to grieve us and weary us, but because these are necessary lessons teaching us to treasure Christ above ourselves. Teaching us to treasure Christ above ourselves. As we'll see in a minute, God is sovereign over everything. Even the trials in life, even the judgment Nebuchadnezzar has here. And the question comes, are we trying to live our lives in our own sufficiency, in our own wisdom, in our own power? Because the Bible says, stop it. It's pretty blunt. He says it's dangerous. It says, turn to Christ, who is all-powerful and all-wise. Who can and does sustain you and submit to him. Newton goes on, he says, the more we become aware of our insufficiency, the more aware we become of the sufficiency of Christ. You can see what had to happen to Nebuchadnezzar here. This is how we're created to be with God. He created the world to have himself at the centre and not us. So please do, if you haven't already, acknowledge God now whilst there's time. And Christian, let's be aware of areas where you're letting pride dominate. Little side point, let's notice how Nebuchadnezzar discovers this truth. It's through the loving, fearless, compassionate words of Daniel, isn't it? He's a great example of speaking truth and love to those who don't know Jesus. Notice as well how God uses him. He uses us to speak truth to those who don't follow him. We must be willing to share the bad news with people that they're out of sorts with God, even as our hearts break as we say it. We must tell people and if you're not a Christian here today hear this from me I say it to you God is not pleased with our tendency of pride God is not pleased with our tendency to put ourselves in charge instead of him so we must be willing to call people to stop it to turn around and to follow him to offer that great hope of the gospel and Daniel does that here he doesn't do it in a rude way or a brash way but with real compassion politeness and a firmness they've been working together for years these two the vicar Rico Tice, he tells the story of his flatmate from university. One day Rico came back to his flat to find his friend absolutely raging. How could you say you're my friend, Rico? You're a Christian, aren't you, Rico? You believe the Bible is true, don't you, Rico? Well, yes, Rico said he was thrilled about the chance to now speak to his mate about Jesus. Well, Rico, I just read the Bible which you told me to read before, and you obviously don't love me at all because you weren't willing to tell me about this. The good news is great but the consequences for not following Jesus are grave. So why didn't you tell me about this? Do you have a challenge there with our friends, with those in Bicester who we'd love to come to know Jesus? We have to tell them the whole truth. 
as Daniel did. It pained him in some ways, but he did it. Telling the whole truth, not just for the fact that God loves them, which he does, but also he calls them to turn away from self-sufficiency. He calls us, he calls you today from the pride of thinking the world revolves around us and calls instead to look to God. Daniel does it with loving boldness. There's a challenge of if we will as well. So that is a warning to the proud. Finally, the great sovereignty of God. Remember what we said here, God is humbling Nebuchadnezzar to remind the original readers and remind us that he rules. God is in control. And this is the important thing for us today. Remember C.S. Lewis, what he said, that we see God for who he is. This is the cure to pride. This is the most important thing, full stop. Remember the purpose of all that was happening to Nebuchadnezzar here, so that you may see the most high. The opposite of pride in the Bible is praise. Praise that God is sovereign. Praise that he alone is in charge. Praise that overflows because we know who God is and we know who we are with a right view of that as well. And see that in verse 34, right at the end. After his humiliation, and it was a long time, Nebuchadnezzar says this, he says, And then I praised the Most High. I glorified and honoured him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. See, at this point, there's two things which happen to Nebuchadnezzar. The way he thinks about God changes. You see, he sees God as he is and he thus sees himself in light of that. Verse 35 to 36, he says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying this. Remember the guy on top of his rooftop in Babylon saying this now. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? His thinking changes and our thinking needs to change. He stopped seeing himself as the centre of the world and he saw God. And then follow that, the way we feel about God, our thinking changes, the way we feel about God changes as well. Verse 37, we see what he says. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. You see, this book, the Bible, it's not about us. We often so often think this book is about us. It's not about us, it's about God. Because of the age we live in, we live in an age where Sadly, the Bible has over the years stopped becoming a book about God and become more and more a book about us, a self-help book. How can, how can I be happy? How do I solve this problem? How do I do that? We, we treat it a little bit like a, a medical, a spiritual encyclopedia. And yes, it can help us with our problems. Of course it can, but that is not its primary aim. This book is about God. And it screams, he is sovereign. I am sovereign and I am in charge and that is a good thing. God alone is the supreme one in the universe and the universe itself was created to tell us just that. Everything exists to serve the ultimate aim of God, which is that his infinite beauty and his worth is seen and enjoyed. That we see in Daniel's words that the most high is God. This dream was given so that you may know that the most high is sovereign. Let us know that this week in all things we do. Nebuchadnezzar sums it up brilliantly. I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's just pure stupidity to be proud. We see here and we're reminded that God has given us it all. And in the end, we will meet him and we will see him how he truly is. 
as God, the majestic creator of the universe. We will stand before him and then we won't be proud. We'll all be humbled, all of us, whether you believe in him today or not. That the call here and the call of the Bible is to humble yourself today. Humble yourself now before God's mighty hand. Don't wait. If you've waited, please don't wait. Nebuchadnezzar did not wait. It took him a while, but he eventually bowed the knee. And his final recorded words, we, we lose Nebuchadnezzar from here. His final recorded words are ones of praise and acknowledgement of who God is. And the fact that in view of that, who on earth are we? I wonder whether our final words will be the same. Now, as we close, I want us to flip back to verse 17. Give us a lovely look into the future for Daniel as it says this. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he chooses and sets over them the lowliest of people. The lowliest of people? It's an obvious echo. Jesus was called this as he came as a carpenter to earth. God humbled himself. He made himself so low that he died the death of a criminal on the cross. He paid the price and smashed death to bits so that those who humble themselves are able to be forgiven by God for their rebellion. That's how it's possible. That's how it was possible for Nebuchadnezzar. You see, true conversion, a true turning to Jesus is marked by what we see here in the king. A humility before God and a genuine repentance, a genuine turning away from how we used to live and a turning towards God. An acknowledgement that we're not the centre of the universe, but he is. Trust him today if you haven't already, please. And if you're a Christian here today, be glad that your pride has been broken by God and that you now know where you stand. And keep coming back to that day to day to day. I forget it so often. I'm so arrogant so often. It's what we're going to do in communion in a minute. We're going to remember who God is and going to remember what we've done. And let's rightly fear this God which is in utter, who is in utter control. He does as he pleases. And let's obey him now by going and proclaiming this good news to our friends and our neighbours. Let's do that in Bista. Let's do that wherever we live. Let's shout to the people of Bista and beyond that God is in control. And let's be encouraged that God is sovereign. It's good news. Even the most powerful man of his day. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in all the world. The one with all the wealth, all the power, all the control. He eventually bowed the knee. And the dominant picture here is just how impossible in human terms his conversion was. The fact that someone so opposed to God, so anti-God was converted is remarkable. So think maybe of that friend you've been praying for for ages. Somebody you think had never come to know God. That member of your family who you've spoken to loads but just isn't interested. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. You wouldn't have got good odds on him coming bam and knee to Jesus, would you? But he did. Keep going with your friends. Look at Daniel. See his love, his compassion, his perseverance. God's sovereign over the timing. It took ages for Nebuchadnezzar to come to know God. And we can imagine Daniel had been praying for it, speaking to him and living a life that points towards God for decades. So let's be persistent. Let's remember as well, Nebuchadnezzar did not deserve salvation. Remember that, neither do we, neither, none of us. But see God's kindness throughout. As we think back on chapters 1, 2 and 3, see his kindness, his grace in the book of Daniel. We've seen so many times when Nebuchadnezzar opposes God's people. And so many times when God reveals the truth to him. He's been so kind to us. God is so kind and he continues to bring people to himself. As we close, remember the lighthouse. God is the rock 
on which the whole world is founded. Either build your lives on the rock or you'll crash into it. Friends, do that today if you haven't already. And if you have, let's do that every day as we acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Lord, we praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything you do is right and all your ways are just. Father, we praise you just for that, that you're sovereign, that you're in control and you are God. And we recognize so many times when we forget that, we put ourselves in your place and we're sorry. But we praise you that you've made it possible through Jesus for forgiveness and for a restoration with you as we live as your people, with you as our God. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.